All right, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. My name's Taylor, and today we're talking about marriage. I wanna give you a little bit about why we're talking about marriage today, though. So we have what's called Grow Night coming up starting August 16th at six o'clock. There'll be five different topics. You can choose one of those and go through each week on Wednesday night, whatever topic you land on. And this week, we're promoting our marriage uh, class where Lance and Mary Clark, if you don't know them, they're fantastic people. Um, They're gonna be leading this class with uh, Francis and Lisa Chan on the book, You and Me Forever. And so we do Grow Night for several reasons. Uh, It's very intentional why we do it. We feel that if we bring topics up that people will naturally gravitate towards those things, whether your marriage is perfect, whether your marriage is completely imperfect, uh, we bring people together. Because one stigma is that we want the church to be out of rows into circles. We want you to find a community of people uh, to do life with. And so gathering in a marriage class isn't to just say like, hey, everyone, look at me, my marriage sucks, that's why I'm here. Part of it's to say, hey, listen, like we're all trying to go through this together. Find a mentor. If, if you have a good marriage, go in there and help a young couple out. But the point is we wanna be strategic about what Grow Night is and we wanna give you this opportunity. Uh, and uniquely with this class of all the Grow Night classes is there's actually a marriage workshop that's gonna take place through it. Uh, so Steve and Twyla Lee, who used to be here with us at Life Church, they moved on to Colorado and they're now doing ministry out there. Uh, they're coming back and they're gonna be hosting this marriage workshop that'll take place uh, within the confines of Grow Night. So more on the workshop to come, but if you wanna know more about uh, how to explore or journey through your marriage together, and you wanna get around other people who are trying to figure it out, uh, Lance and Mary Clark will be in the cafe after service and you can go ahead and sign up there. Don't worry if you're not tech savvy, I put a piece of paper out there for you. Uh, but there's also uh, our website and our app if you click Grow Night, you can get signed up that way as well. So again, we're talking about marriage. Uh, and I'm gonna have to breeze through a lot of this today because we could do three to four sermons uh, just on this topic that we've kind of landed on and what we're talking about today. But I wanna set us up with some of the, the major points of what we'll be talking through today. So first, in order to understand a marriage, we need to understand the marriage's design. We need to know what God's design for man and woman becoming one in the flesh. And we need to understand what the origins of that were and how that affects us today. Then what we need to look at is, now once you've taken this step of marriage, or maybe you're looking to take this step of marriage, How do you put Jesus in the middle of it? How does Christ coming into the middle of our relationships change things? And then let's be honest, just like the video you watched before, their garage was messy and they said, so is our marriage. They wrote a book about it. They wrote a study about it. Like if we're honest with ourselves, there is no perfect marriage. You might really love your spouse and you might really be working through things together. But at the same time, there's a lot of messiness that comes with the marriage. And so how do you get back on track to your first love in your marriage. And so we're gonna kind of breeze through some uh, topics and ideas here, so just bear with me, take notes. um, And we're gonna open up right now, though, with Genesis chapter two. So if you wanna open your Bibles to Genesis chapter two, we'll be in verses 20 through 24, uh, and it'll also be on your screens, but I wanna lay this out for you real quick as you see it. So God creates the heavens and the earth, right? We read in scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made that out of nothing. No materials, no substance. He spoke things into existence. The creator of the universe. He creates the animals. He creates man. And he places man where? 
in the garden, in the Garden of Eden. If you reflect back on our original design series, where we broke open this idea of what it's like to uh, be on mission, we talked about there's two roles for a man in the garden when God created him and placed him there. It was to work it and to care for it. And so, ironically enough, what God's gonna do is he's gonna now create woman and he's gonna place her now in the garden. And now the man not only is working the garden, but God knew, number one, he couldn't do that alone. He needed a helper. And number two, a man now has to work with someone else and care for someone else. And so we're gonna go in now, Genesis chapter two, verses 20 through 24, and this is what it says. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. You see, right away, God knew that the loneliness of man, the aloneness of man was not good. And we've talked about this over and over, but isolation is a tool of the enemy. That if the man remained alone, he was not able to fulfill the mission. We've all been there in one way or another in our life where when you're alone, you can't do things as well as you could with a good partner. Like the mission, you can't fulfill it without someone else. You can't consider yourself a Christian and be alone your whole life. You would never talk to anyone. You'd be isolated. It would tear you apart. Sure, you can read your Bible in silence every day, but then what are you doing with what God commanded you to do, which is to reach people for him? And so right away, God recognizes this aloneness of man. The other thing that happens is that he creates woman out of man. His design was unique. Remember when he created the heavens and the earth, it was made out of what? Nothing. So when God looks to to Adam and says, you need a helper, he could have created whoever or whatever out of nothing. But we see here, God creates woman out of man's rib, out of his side, the same substance of man, not just something else, not something whimsical, not out of no materials. There is a specific design to say, I'm gonna make the helper that's suitable for him from him. And he formed that rib into a woman. Well, this is part of our barrier today is that we don't like hearing the word helper. I've talked with a lot of women through marriage counseling about this and the submit and the helper word seem to be these demeaning words. And in the world, they are. And if you don't understand the context of scripture, it is. But it's not a position of inferiority. It's not a lesser than position. A helper is a perfect suitor for the man. Man could not do it. You have to have someone there for you. So God's design was that man and woman would unite in one flesh to complete this mission. And there's an old Jewish saying that says, it speaks of the location in which God created woman. He didn't choose the feet so that women would be made underneath man. He didn't choose the head so that she would be above man. God chose the rib. Have you ever think about that? Like the most random body part. If I said, name a body part right now, nobody's gonna be like, ribs. 
The, the most random body part, but the Jewish culture and the Jewish traditional saying was that God chose this because it would be under a man's arm so he could put his arm around her and protect her. And it was near his heart so he could love her. Back to why God put Adam into the garden was so he could work it and to care for it. It's the same thing. The idea of putting someone under your arm and loving them is to work alongside them, alongside one another and to care for one another. And so there's this idea to the design right away that God has that it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense to send someone that would perfectly complement us. But we have to remember that Adam and Eve at one point remembered that they were very different. When they saw each other's nakedness, they looked at one another and they recognized they had this awareness of what their sin had done to them. And they looked at each other like they were completely different. Often in marriage today, we look at our spouse like they're a completely different person. But biblically, it says that two become one flesh. So really, when you think you're so much different than your spouse or your spouse is so much different than you, you're actually more alike than you are different because you're made of the exact same substance as one another. You are made in one flesh. So there's this idea of oneness to God's design. And when you go into a wedding, you know, if you've ever been to a wedding, what is what are the vows at the end or the, the phrases at the end always indicate? You will be bound together until when? Death do you part. So put marriage now in its eternal perspective. God did not design the marriage of the flesh to be eternal. He designed it to be for a lifetime. So you might be like, well, why, would, why do I care about it now then if I'm supposed to care about the eternal? Because the right now reflects the eternal. Think about an unbeliever looking to your marriage right now. There is a marriage to come for eternity. Do people know that when they look at your marriage? Does bringing you together to, to multiply, to make you know, more believers on this earth, to follow what God did and live on mission for him, does that change what people see when they look at you? Because the, the here and the now is meant to glorify him for all of eternity. So we're stewards of this marriage, right? We're steward, stewards of this opportunity where two become one. And Jesus tells us this. He says, if you read, go read in Matthew, he says that you will neither be married nor given into marriage in heaven. You will be like angels. He's using this phrase that like, you will be there and think about what angels do, glorifying God, worshiping him for all of eternity. You know why he gave us a helper here? Because we were alone. Because we didn't have the other half that we needed. We couldn't complete the mission. We couldn't reproduce. There's many reasons why the marriage here and now was designed the way it was, but in heaven, you don't need a helper anymore. There's no work to be done anymore. You're not alone anymore. Now, I'm not saying you won't know your spouse in heaven. I'm not saying there may not be a relationship there. I can't tell you what that means or what that looks like. Nobody's been there yet. But we have to understand if you put your marriage in the lens of an eternity, right now is so short. You don't have a lot of time with what you've been given already. You might say, yeah, well, I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 50. Like you're over halfway through your life in some instances here on earth. And we already start marriage later into life. You don't start it from the day you're born. But when you give your life to Christ and you understand the design of marriage, something should change. The eternal idea of marriage should change us. So, Put this into perspective now. You know the design of marriage and there's far more you can go look up about what the unity of marriage was. But now look what happens when we put Jesus in the middle of that unity, of the middle of that ceremony. So I'm gonna have you turn to John chapter two. 
It'll also be on the screens. John chapter two, verses one through 11. It says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And I laughed at this next part because my mom was sitting right there. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But then his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. How many moms want to tell people, do whatever he tells you to their kid? He says, now there was six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. But Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the idea of what a Jewish marriage looks like, you put this into perspective, it makes me laugh. And not that this is wrong. They celebrated for seven days. A wedding was a seven day long ordeal. Big celebration, new marriage, unity, leaving your father and mother. I watch people fight and get more divided in their marriage, just planning for a wedding that's gonna last for six hours. Like people have to save up and take out personal loans to get a venue nowadays so they can have a six hour ceremony. Well, think about it. If you went to a wedding today and they didn't have any food or if they had food, but they ran out because they had so little, you'd be like, what the heck? Why didn't they think that through? Imagine running out of whatever it was they were hosting with right away. Like you're inviting 100 people, but you only have food for 30. That's kind of odd. Now, do it for seven days. (laughs) A lot more time, a lot more resources, a lot more things going into this. You feeding people for a wedding costs an arm and a leg. Imagine doing it for seven whole days. So the, the hosts of these weddings, right? There was a lot on their shoulders because they're supposed to provide hospitality. Like your family from far away is coming in to celebrate. You're reuniting with them. You're celebrating this family and this family coming together and you run out of the thing you're supposed to use to entertain and to host. Like that's actually in Jewish culture, it was humiliating if they were to run out of wine. It was shameful if they ran out of wine, but that's exactly what happened. They ran out of wine. And then not to mention in this passage that not only is Jesus gonna do something here that they don't know of, but how odd for his first miracle to be turning water into wine. Like of all the things the son of God could do, he just takes water, turns it into wine. It seems a little odd, but there's far more meaning to what he did. And it says it caused people to believe in him through this. The other thing I don't wanna skip over is right there in verse two. We'll kind of break this section of scripture down, but in verse two, it says that Jesus was invited as well as his disciples. Inviting Jesus to a wedding talks about the presence of Jesus in a wedding. So I have a question for you. Have you invited Jesus into your marriage? And what are we waiting for to do that? Because knowing what we know now, the presence of Jesus can change things. 
Maybe you weren't believers when you got married and maybe now you're giving your life to Christ. It's not too late to invite Jesus to the middle of your marriage, in the middle of your relationship, in the middle of your life because he died so that we would believe in him and that we'd have eternal life in light of the temporary marriage that we have today. But now look at the perspective of the servants because I relate to this. I think most of us can relate to this at least. Think about being a servant inside of this wedding, right? It says that they used these jars that were for purification rites. And if you know Jewish culture, they were really big about following rules and following the law and the water was somewhat a symbol of the law. But in order to prevent themselves from being defiled, they would wash their hands with this water. They would clean these utensils as to not defile themselves for the ceremony and to be clean. But interestingly enough, Jesus is going to change that idea of what being pure means. He would no longer need this substance. You would need something else. You would need him, the new source of life, the new source of purification. And then again, put yourself in the position. Imagine you're a servant and Jesus says, fill these up with water. How many of you have ever gone to a restaurant in order to drink from the drive-thru and they fill it up to the top but that's just the bubbles and you know it's gotta go down, but they put the lid on it while the bubbles are still going and then they hand it to you and you look at it and you're like, that's missing like three ounces of water or liquid or whatever it is. You just wanna hand it back and be like, that's not really full. I just... But like in the same thing from one person's perspective, they filled it up and they gave it to you, but you're expecting something that's full. Jesus didn't tell the, the servants to fill it to the brim. He said, just fill it up. But look at their faith that they had. Not knowing what was gonna happen they filled those water jars up to the brim. It's like 120 gallons if you do the math, something around that. They filled it to the brim, not knowing what was gonna happen. What if Jesus wanted to add something to it? There's no room. But Jesus was never gonna add something to the water. He was gonna transform it. Think about this in light of your marriage. Having Christ at the center of your marriage, he's not adding anything else to you. He's transforming it. He's making it something new. But I think naturally we just assume there's more things I have to do. That's because we've turned our love for one another and our love into Christ into a life of works. So it looks like I have a lot more to do when really Jesus is saying, no, just give it to me and trust in me. Trust in him. Mom said, Mary said, whatever he says, do it. How many of us like being told what to do? Raise your hands. Oh, you guys are not, you're not being truthful here. Todd, you like being told what to do? He's like halfway, depends. But if Jesus says it, you'll do it, right? That's right. No one, if you're honest with yourself, wants to hear, you need to do this or you have to do this thing. You wanna walk into a relationship with someone. But when Jesus said, do it, they, they said, hey, listen, we're just trusting in faith that because he said it, I'm gonna believe in it and he's gonna do something. Again, they still don't know what's to come. They still don't know that he's about to make his first miracle and his glory, the will of the Father, known, but they're still being obedient. So they fill up those jars with wine. Guess what? That still doesn't fix the problem that we have because wine is still missing. But because Jesus said it, let's go fill these up with water. He said, put water in them. I know the master's gonna come complaining in a minute. Right, we still need wine, but all right, we'll go ahead and fill these up with water. And then Jesus says, take that, and give it to the master. The, I don't know if you know this, Jesus, but they're wanting wine, not this. 
and then they serve it to the master. In faith, in obedience to what Christ had said, they hand the water to the master and he tastes it and a transformation takes place. Imagine you're sitting there, you're like, oh no, here's the water. And someone drinks it and goes, you've saved the good wine until now. You'd be like, what? (laughs) I didn't do anything. Understand this, your obedience means that you're maybe not in charge of the miracle because God is, but you can be a part of a miracle because God can work through you through your obedience. Sometimes we just have to do what he says and trust and have faith in him. But just like those servants who filled things up, you once had water and now you have wine. Imagine that miracle. Imagine seeing the face on people when they're like, yes, we have more. But you as servants who did not know initially what was gonna happen are now the only ones who know what really just happened. Because any regular attender of the wedding was just like, sweet, they brought the good stuff out, let's keep going. And the servants are like, dude, like, what just happened? And it's about making things new. If you look at your marriage in light of that, and you know that you had great wine, like follow this wedding. When you first met your spouse and you first got married, fireworks, sparks, love, fulfillment, joy, all the emotions. And then reality hits and you get done with your honeymoon. You come back to life. It ain't that anymore. And the wine maybe in your marriage today has run out. Or maybe all you have is water now. But understand, if all you have is water, you can give Jesus that water and he can turn it into wine. The idea of wine is that something better is to come. It was for Jesus declaring his Messiahship, saying that there is a marriage to come. There is this unity for eternity to come in Jesus Christ, but for our marriages too. If you were to place your marriage in his hands, what could he transform in it? Let's be honest. How many of us actually need a miracle in our marriage right now? I'm up here saying all this to you, but I don't have a perfect marriage. But I love my wife and I love the Lord. So whatever I've gotta do to be obedient to him, to let him transform me, to transform my marriage, I'm I'm all in. But I wish you guys could follow along. Actually, I don't, I don't know. I am not a good husband sometimes, but I have a perfect father that I can go to and a perfect savior in Jesus. And so when my marriage is failing, I don't just call it quits. I dive in deeper to my relationship with God because understand this, when Jesus left this earth, he left us with a commission. Said before he comes back, here's what we have to be doing as a believer in Christ. It's the great commission, Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. You can go read this or write it down. He says that you're gonna go into all nations and you're gonna baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when you read on, Jesus says, if you're doing my mission, you're doing the will of the Father, surely I will be with you until the end of the age. You ever feel like you're alone though, doing the work? People, I watch people get married all the time. They're on fire, they get married, they stop because life is busy. And we've gotta work on us. All your time and energy gets focused on us and you forget about the mission. Your spouse is meant to help you fulfill the mission, to help you do the work. So how are we letting God be glorified through our marriage? How are we sharing the gospel in light of our marriage? How is the gospel changing what our marriage is and the work that we do and the people that we're reaching? But when it's hard, you don't just get to give up. 
Like how many of you uh, have had a hard time reaching someone in your faith and you're like, you know what? All right, I'm just done, I'm out. You don't get that choice as a believer. There's work to be done. When your marriage gets hard, you don't just get to walk away from it either. But so many people assume that I'll live for Christ, but I'm not gonna fight for this thing anymore. It's not worth it. Listen, reevaluate that. How are you glorifying God with what you have right now? It's the easiest decision to say, I don't wanna deal with this adversity right now. I'm just gonna give up. Whether that's in your faith or in your marriage, that's the easy way out. God said, you're gonna have to go through some sufferings as a believer, you're gonna have to deny your flesh. You're gonna have to deny some of those feelings. You have to swallow your pride. So when it's not easy, how are you taking the not easy and glorifying him and working through that with someone rather than just walking away? So often in Christian marriages, people who are professing their faith in Christ are just like, yeah, it's too hard, I'm out. So then here, let me ask you this. What makes you different than the world then? How is that marriage any different than the world? They can just walk away too. An unbeliever has no obligation to remain married to anyone. So when they look at you, when people look at your marriage, because whether you wanna believe it or not, people are looking at your marriage. And you profess your faith, are people seeing the gospel happening in your life? That Jesus Christ can change your life. That he can change your marriage. He can transform it. If not, what are you doing to show people that? And if you can't show people that, maybe where is my relationship with God in the first place? But there's a reality to our marriages that we also, I think, have to face. It's that love and action have to go hand in hand. I'm not convinced that we do a good job at this. If I said, take the words, I love you, out of your vocabulary, how do you love your spouse? We're really good at saying we're really good at making promises. We said it at our wedding. I vow to you, I'll do all this. Then what? I'm not convinced that anyone in this generation, the generation before us, has really gotten this down right. And maybe you have, but I'm just being honest and from experience. I've said a lot more than I've ever done for my wife. I promised a lot more than I could ever keep. I raised the bar so high with my mouth that I was never to keep it up with my hands. How are you putting your love into action? Because that's what Jesus asks of us. Through word and deed, how are we glorifying God? I did some uh, research on this as well. There's a lot of metrics on Christian divorce rates, uh, which is crazy that that's even a metric. But for people who profess their faith in Jesus, who attend church regularly, who are involved, who have a right standing personal relationship with Jesus versus a person who just is kind of half in, sporadically attends, half cheeks their faith, I call it. Just that metric there between someone who's kind of in and out versus the person who's all in, the person who's all in has a 35% greater chance of having a long-lasting and lifetime marriage. 35% just there. Like there are people who come into these doors who aren't necessarily in their faith. So is the world looking to you knowing that there's a difference right there with people who claim faith and people who have faith versus the people that don't know Christ, are they looking to your marriage and saying, it's proven that Jesus changes things. It's proven that I can look at that marriage and say, I want the secret to that because what I have isn't working. I'm gonna be real. 
A lot of our marriages are no different than the world. Why would someone from the world want a Christian marriage? Listen, I fight the same as you. I love my wife just like you love my, your wife. I have kids. We're living in the same world, the same economy. We fight all the time. Like, what's different between you and me? Because what you have as a Christian is just more rules. Why would they want to add anything to their plate? Well, it's because you're not adding anything to your plate. We just haven't let God transform it. There's not a whole lot that you can do to get things back on track other than surrender, repent, obedience. Actually give your heart to your spouse. But first and foremost, give your heart to God so he can transform you. Now we're gonna transition to the end, Revelation chapter two, verses four through five. It'll be on your screen as well. If your marriage is not perfect, if you're trying to figure things out, if you can take anything away from this sermon today, single, dating, married, widowed, divorced, wherever you're at in life. Marriage affects us all. If there's one piece of advice I can give you, it's this next part. It's get back to your first love. Get back to your first love. Revelation chapter two, verses four through five says this. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is Jesus talking to the church in Ephesus. If you read Revelation, this is one of the letters to the seven churches. This church was doing good things. Actually, of all the churches, it looked like they were doing good things. It says good works, enduring perseverance, challenging false teachers, but God had something against them. Jesus said, you've abandoned your first love. And so how many people here have ever dreamt of what their ideal marriage would be before they got married? Raise your hands. A lot more. First service, there was like one person. So you've dreamt of like, this is what ideally would be like. My, my spouse would be like this. This is the attributes they would have. This is where we would live. And this is how successful we would be. And this is how our kids would react when we talk to them. Like there's this idea of perfection. And in marriage counseling, what I always have couples do is break it down Say, what did you think was your perfect world and what did you think your perfect world was? Because standing before you is this person and standing before you is this person. As to not live in disappointment anymore, we just talk about the reality of it. But once I watch these couples settle through and talk through the differences of what their expectations were, they understand like this is the person. I didn't envision it the way I thought, but this is my ideal now. And so when you go to a wedding, the one thing I love to see is the first look whether that's before the ceremony or during the, the bride and groom seeing each other for the first time at the aisle walking up to the altar, I always tell people, capture that moment. Because we all know the busyness of weddings, like the chaos that goes with a wedding, the planning it, the prepping for it, going through things to get ready for that six hour window. I, I have to tell people, just slow down and take it in, be a part of it. So when I was getting married to Erica years ago, I wasn't in my faith yet. We had come back to Indiana to do our wedding and Mike was marrying us. And I was just a wild partying fiend. And Erica kind of was too. You know, you can talk to her about that. Let her explain her side. But we didn't really have a foundation. 
And so I didn't know what a rehearsal was. I'm just like, okay, we're supposed to walk through, I guess, so we don't look stupid the day of the wedding. And we had our family there and everybody involved in the wedding. And, you know, we get to walk through the venue. It's beautiful. And I'm like, all right, cool. Well, I just lost my wallet right before the rehearsal. And I'm not in my faith. So I was not a happy guy. Didn't just lose my card. Lost the whole wallet, my military ID, my credit cards. We're supposed to go on a honeymoon, like right after this. Uh, thank you, Lord, I guess, because uh, that changed because a hurricane destroyed our resort. But changed our plans, so I didn't really need the wallet for where we were going. I was good to go about the U.S. with what I had. But point is, I went in with a bad heart. I went into this rehearsal with a bad heart. And I'm just kind of going through the motions. I'm like, all right, let's get this done. I got to figure out, I got to call the banks. I got to do all this stuff. And Mike's standing behind me. And we're up to the point where Erica is about to walk down the aisle in our walkthrough with her dad. And I'm just like, kind of just sitting there like, all right, let's do this. And Mike whispers from behind me. And he goes, don't forget this moment. Because 20 years ago, 20 something years ago, I remember looking at my bride walking down the aisle and I remember seeing her for the first time and it's an image that I'll never forget and it's something that I reflect back on. I just started losing it. I'm like, what's happening? Like I start tearing up, start crying. I'm an ugly crier. And I'm like, (laughs) I don't need to be crying right now, but understand this. I wasn't in my faith yet and I needed the lens of someone who knew Jesus to tell me the beauty of what marriage is really designed to be. I keep that moment in my head and in my heart because every couple that I marry, I tell them the same things. I say, slow down and look. The first time you see your bride, the first time you see your groom, don't forget that moment. When you're standing at the altar, don't forget that moment. When you're doing your first dance, don't forget that moment. Those are rent-free. I keep those forever. Nobody can take those memories from me. But you know why I tell people to take those pictures? Because once you get off the honeymoon phase, once you're back into the reality of life, I watch this far too often, I'm guilty of it myself. You start getting on fire. Yeah, I can't wait to be, you get engaged, it's new, it's exciting. I can't wait to be married. My wedding, oh, it was awesome. Now we're gonna go on a honeymoon? Oh, time away, disconnected from the world with the one that I love, this is the best. You come back week one, Bibles in hands, like, hey, we're at church today, guys, we're married. See the stuff on my finger? Week two, I don't see those couples. Week three, don't see those couples. Week four, don't see those couples. Check in on them. Listen, I've fallen into this too. Life got too busy. The marriage starts to take its effect on the couple. Starts to kind of crumble a little bit. Becomes more challenging. Like we're not silly. We all know what we should be doing to get back on track. But for some reason, we just choose not to. We choose not to. But when it's hard, when all you feel like you're doing is fighting with your spouse and it feels like all you are is roommates and when you don't like the breath that they breathe, it's too close to you and it's too loud, you want nothing to do with them or maybe everything that they say drives you nuts. Understand this, pull the picture up. Go back and remember that moment. If you are married right now or you are about to be married, you are fortunate. You have the blessing of God and the opportunity to glorify him through the beautiful union from the beginning of creation. There are people who have lost their spouse and don't have that anymore. There are people who don't have the ability to love someone else the way they once did by the design of God and they would give anything to have that back here and now. You are blessed beyond measure 
if we could open our eyes up and put what we have now into its perspective. Because what does Jesus tell the church in Ephesus here? He didn't say, hey, listen, you've lost your love. We gotta get back on track. You can go look at the Greek for this. And in this translation, the ESV, it says, you abandoned the love that you once had. Abandoned it. There's a difference here. You ever lose your wallet like I did? No clue where you left it. No clue, maybe somebody took it. Lose my keys all the time. Little fun story, I recently put my wallet through the washer and dryer and I couldn't find it. My wife found it. So we laid all of the stuff out on the table. My son found it. He's two. He took my cards out and put them in our friend's baby's diaper bag and we canceled the cards. Like, I don't know where they're at. My grandma called me and found cards in her couch. No clue how they got to grandma's house. I've been going to Kroger getting points still. I lost my wallet. I didn't know where it was. You can lose something by accident, but you can't abandon something accidentally. When you abandon something, you know right where you left it and you made a choice to leave it there. And Jesus is saying to the church, you abandon the love. The heart behind what you're doing is just going through motions now. They took a relationship and their love and their desires for Jesus and turned it into mere religion and mere steps and things that you just have to do. Don't let your marriage get that way. Keep that spark. If you have it right now, yes, it's temporary. It's meant to glorify. It's meant to walk into eternity. But don't miss the opportunity because you know what Jesus says here? He says that what you can do about it is you can repent. You don't know how to get back to that start. You don't know how to get back to the first love and the first, the excitement and the joy that you had. You repent. Listen, if you've lost something, be humble enough. Go to your spouse. Listen, I, I got to admit, I think I, I left this over here and I don't know where it is and I, I need your help getting back. But also be humble enough to go over here and be like, listen, I left that and I'm sorry. We cannot humble ourselves sometimes to say, I did this, I wronged you, I need your forgiveness. But what would you have to lose when you're glorifying God? Why do we have such a hard time humbling ourselves and saying like, listen, I messed this up. Because repent is to turn away from completely and Jesus in this letter to the seven churches is saying, you need to do it now before it's too late. You don't know how long you have with your spouse. You do not promise another breath. Do you wanna leave it as it is now? Are you comfortable with that? Are you good knowing like if I died today, my spouse is gonna feel my love until we meet again? What are they gonna feel? What are they gonna miss? And how is it being contagious? How is it being salt and light to the world around us? Because there's a difference between abandoning and losing. And your job is to repent. So I'm gonna ask Three questions. One of them is like a two-part question. I want you to write these down. Take notes. Uh, email me if you don't write them down fast enough. Jennifer told me I sped read these questions. And so I want you to sit down with these questions I'm gonna give you. Whether it's with yourself or probably better with your spouse. And be honest. Evaluate your marriage and say, answer the questions together. Where are we at here? Maybe it's broken and maybe you need to get back. Maybe you need to give Jesus all you have so he can transform your marriage. Maybe it's good, but maybe you can still reflect back on where you came in that first moment and glorify God and just give him all the praise and say, thank you. We didn't deserve to be where we're at. So this first question is this. 
am I making time for God and my spouse? We forget that. The sub question of this is, am I making time in prayer with and for my spouse? I know couples that often have never prayed together that don't pray for one another. Am I making time for God and my spouse? And am I making time in prayer with and for my spouse? Next question is this. Is my marriage in the shape that it is because I have compared it to something else? Have you been seeking what someone else has? And it doesn't look the way that is to you, so you've let it get to this point. Or have you been motivated by what someone else has, for good or for worse? Last question is this. Am I justifying my behaviors and my actions but condemning my spouse's? Talk through that. Work through those things. Be honest with yourself. What do you have to lose? Hey, listen, I know I'm not perfect over here. I haven't given you a lot of time. I need to be giving you a lot more time. And honestly, the time that I've given you, wife, is because I haven't even given it to God. Don't fixate on trying to fix your marriage as much as you are trying to fix your relationship with God and being obedient to him. So I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. We now have this opportunity for communion which is very fitting again, because we get to commune with God as believers. So we're gonna turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, and we're gonna start in verses uh, 23 through 28, and we're gonna uh, talk through what Paul writes in this passage. So he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So Paul says this in communion, first and foremost, if you are not sure where you're at in your faith, you're under no obligation to partake in communion. He says to examine yourself. But if you're in a right standing relationship with God, take time to reflect on what communion really means. It's not just about the bread and the wine. It's not about just sitting here in this moment and eating that substance. It's about understanding what Jesus Christ did for us. That the son of God came to this earth born of a virgin birth and that he died on a cross, his body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That they buried him in a tomb for three days and he resurrected on the third, on the third day and that he was on this earth at his resurrection for 40 days, then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he is to return again. Knowing that, as a believer, ask yourself, who am I here for then? Put your marriage into perspective. You are still here to glorify him, and you've been given a spouse to help you accomplish the mission. So let us reflect in this time together. I'm gonna pray for you, but I'm gonna ask that you stay seated the worship team's gonna play uh, for a minute or two to allow you the opportunity to reflect on what communion means.
And then Corinne will let us know that the communion tables will be open. There's two in the front, and then there's now one uh, right in the middle in the back here. So will you please bow your head and close your eyes and let us pray. Lord, (laughs) I've missed the mark far more than I care to admit. And I haven't been faithful as a servant and I've missed the whole point of what my marriage is at times, but I'm thankful that I have you to go back to. Help me and help us all remember that marriage isn't just about our spouse, it's about you. That you gave us this design. How can we steward it? How can we be, through our challenges, be glorifying you? How can we work together as one flesh to bring you all the glory and to bring people to you? What do people see in our marriages that reflect that you're at the center? And let us remember that it's never too late to invite you in. It's never too late to remember the sacrifice that you've paid for us, for our sins. Let us be humble, let us be honest, and let us allow you to transform us so that you can transform our marriages for the lives of those around us, but more importantly for you. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.